Um, I'm going to be bringing you a um, maybe slightly less than traditional uh, Christmas message this morning. Next Sunday, Lord willing, will be um, from John chapter 1. And uh, this morning, I, I really want to focus on what I'm calling Christmas dreams. And it is the, the supernatural elements of Advent. And we're going to go back 2,000 years, and we're going to look at the life of a guy who doesn't get a lot of press in the scripture. He flashes in and then he fades out. And his name's Joseph. Joseph, of all of the men living on planet Earth at that time, was handpicked by God to be the um, earthly father of Jesus Christ the Lord. And every year I am, I, I am stunned afresh as I study his life, whether I preach it or not, every Christmas, I just fixate on the life of Joseph because there's probably more practical benefit to studying his life during the Christmas time. And I say practical, not necessarily theological benefit, but practical benefit because Joseph's life got turned completely upside down at the birth of Jesus. And when I watch him walk through what would have been a, an amazing privilege, but in those moments, it wouldn't have felt necessarily like a privilege. It would have felt like an upheaval to Joseph. And I watch his steadfast confidence in his God and his faithful servanthood to the plan of the Lord. And I think to myself, whatever Joseph is doing in heaven today, it's good for us on earth just to learn from his example. And so let's, let's just read together out of Matthew chapter number one. I'm going to read just a handful of verses and then we'll talk into chapter two, but let's open in Matthew one. Matthew one, verse number 18, it says this, that now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his Mary, excuse me, when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. And we're quoting from Isaiah here. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Joseph was a blue-collar, first-century man. He wasn't prominent. He wasn't from a prominent city. He didn't have a whole lot of majestic elements to his life story. 
He was a blue-collar man who had been engaged to, betrothed, that old English word, to a younger woman, Mary, who some scholars believe was between the ages of 14 and 17. Very normal in that culture, in that age, for a young girl or a young woman to be married. And Joseph and Mary had formally engaged in a commitment to become husband and wife. What you may not know is in that culture and at that time, when they became engaged, it was a formally ratified um, uh, arrangement. And so in those moments where the arrangement was made, they were viewed as husband and wife. There was no intimacy between them, yet they were known as husband and wife. And any kind of intimacy with anybody else would have been known and it would have been specified by the Jewish law as adultery, and it would have been punishable potentially by death. That's how seriously they took marriage. By the way, a side note, we could learn some things from them. (laughs) The heart of God hasn't changed about sexual intimacy. The heart of God hasn't changed about marriage. The heart of God has not backed on, uh, back, excuse me, backed off or, or dumbed down his expectation of a man and a woman when they become husband and wife. And this was a very serious commitment that these two had to each other, though the actual marriage has not been yet formalized. And it's into that context, into that setting, that we step in with Joseph this morning. So let's begin back up in chapter 1 of verses 18 through 25, the verses I just read, and let's enter into this roller coaster moment in Joseph's life with what I'm calling a heaven sent twist. A heaven sent twist. First of all, let's just go ahead and enter into Joseph's conflict. You've got to think like this man. We've got to slip on his sandals for a moment and walk through this with him. The scripture says, this is how the birth of Jesus Christ took place. His mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together intimately. She was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit, and her husband Joseph, being a just just man, was unwilling to shame her publicly, so he chose instead to privately divorce her. Now, walk with me in this. So all things are moving towards the big day. The wedding is coming. Joseph and Mary have entered into a formal commitment to each other. There may have already been the percolation of being in love with each other, but they knew one thing is for certain, that their lives were going to be spent together. And so Joseph is preparing for that day. He's getting ready to become her husband. And then there is a conversation found nowhere in Scripture, but it had to have taken place where Mary, perhaps alone, perhaps through a messenger, sends word to Joseph this incredible tale that is impossible to believe. What is it? Joseph, I want you to know that I love you more than I ever have. And I want you to know that something incredible has happened to me. I had a visitation from the angel Gabriel who came to me in my home, and he told me that in my body would be conceived the the Messiah. The holy king of Israel is now in my body. Joseph, I am with child, but Joseph, I want you to know I have not been unfaithful to you. I am still chaste. I am still a virgin. Now, it, it isn't funny in the least... It's, it's intense, but there's not a man in the room that would have said, glory. There's not a one of us, gentlemen. There's not a woman in the room that would have been surprised at a negative response from her engaged husband. 
It, it is a Im humanly impossible situation where Mary, for her whole life, was stigmatized as a harlot. Jesus, when he was ministering, would endure the wrath and the scorn of the Pharisees who would say, we know who our daddy is. We weren't born of fornication. And the implication to Jesus was, we weren't born and conceived out of wedlock like you were. And so it followed them their whole lives. But Joseph cannot receive this news. And so he does what a hundred out of a hundred men would have done. He says, in essence, my heart has been broken. I have been blindsided by this news. But I still love this girl, and I'm not willing to make an example out of her. I'm not going to marry her, but I'm also not going to publicly shame her. And he begins to enter into a legal annulment, a divorce from that uh, commitment that they've made. This is his deep conflict. He's now taking a 90-degree angle, maybe a 180, and everything that he thought was about to happen is no longer going to happen. The love of his life has now, in his mind, either lost her mind or she has been unchaste and she has committed adultery against him. Either way, it's over. You know, we make Christmas very sentimental, don't we? It's hallmarkish in our day. But when we go back to the original setting, the original scene, we see that the Lord took a humanly impossible situation and brought the most glorious effect from it. He still does that, by the way. Let's go further into the story. Now, the Lord's plan would not be thwarted by Joseph's natural response. We see God's divine intervention in verse number 20. As Joseph considered these things, so he's made up his mind to go ahead and divorce Mary to call off the wedding. As he considered these things, behold, uh, Matthew uses that word, and he's saying, I want you to take note of this. Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and Joseph, you will call that boy's name Jesus, Yeshua, for he will save his people from their sins. You see... What is now kind of circling, orbiting around this conception in Mary is all sorts of supernatural activity. You've got to realize it actually began earlier where Zechariah had received word that his wife Elizabeth in her old age would conceive a baby. Now, after centuries of silence in the Hebrew nation, you've got a flurry of angelic activity. Gabriel is moving saying the fullness of time has come. The Father has dispatched now his will and now you're going to see the Messiah's reign begin to come on earth. And so all of these supernatural events are beginning to take place and God God is not willing to leave his people in the, in the shattered remnants of their dreams and their hopes. Joseph's life fell apart. Mary was stigmatized. There's nobody in that city that would have believed that Mary had kept herself pure. It just doesn't work that way. All of them went to Jerusalem High and they took Biology 101. They know how babies are made. And there's no precedent for this. There's no way for them to be able to say, ah, oh, yes, of course. There's not even the awareness fully from their Old Testament, Testament studies that clarity would have said the virgin herself, chaste and pure, having never known a man, would conceive. You only have this tidbit from Isaiah chapter 7, 8, and 9. And yet even that would not have been clear to the average Hebrew in that day. 
But the Lord says to Joseph, or says to Gabriel, the angel, go, invade Joseph's troubled night of sleep. Speak into his mind while his senses are yielded and his body is at rest. And communicate to Joseph that he can trust Mary. That the one to whom he gave his heart, she has preserved her body for him. And what has taken place in her womb is nothing short than the greatest miracle earth had ever seen at that time. God was becoming a man, and he would do it by supernatural endowment from the Holy Spirit in the womb of a teenage virgin. And then he said, Joseph, I'm even going to tell you what to call him. His name will be Yeshua, Joshua. We read, of course, in our language, the Greek, Jesus. And it's just simply a name that was so common in that day. It would be as common as the name Joshua is today. And it's a word, a name that signifies God saves God saves. God saves. And then the angel in the dream says, you're going to call him this because this is the boy who will become the man, who will be recognized as the Messiah, who will come and deliver all people who believe on him from their sins. Friends, I want you to think, yeah, it's hard to get into this moment because it's Christmas and you're worried about what you're going to do at the mall this week. Forget about all of that stuff. Get in a moment here for a moment. So, Before he ever came forth from the womb, the mission on Jesus' life was given. He will save people from their sins. Can can I go there with you for a moment? Uh, Friends, ultimately, the mission of Jesus is to reverse the curse The curse that humankind received because of our forefather Adam and Eve, their rebellion in the garden, and sin has entered into the realm of earthly existence. Adam forfeited paradise when he chose not to believe God. When he took the forbidden fruit and he willingly ate it after Eve had been deceived by the certain serpent, Adam was not deceived. Adam knew what he was doing and rebelled against God and rebellion and sin against God spread from Adam into every descendant of Adam. And that includes me and that includes you. And brothers and sisters, we don't simply have a morality problem. We don't simply have an intellectual problem. It's not even a matter of just human rebellion, but there is within the heart of everyone born into this world, there is within our heart this seed of depravity that must be uprooted and replaced with a seed of righteousness. And Jesus is that seed of righteousness. So if you're here today and you're a churchgoer, and you believe in God, and maybe you have a little bit of religious stuff on your resume that's pretty impressive compared to those who have nothing on their resume. And, and, and maybe you have nice thoughts, and maybe you do some nice deeds, and, and maybe it's within your heart to try to be a better person because, after all, it's about that season for New Year's resolutions. And, and maybe you don't want to be as bad next year as you were in former years, or maybe you're actually pursuing to be good. Or maybe... Maybe you were like I was, hoping to dodge the eye of God for so many years. Just run as fast as you can, and maybe if you keep moving, God won't pinpoint where you are. And then when you finally get busted, it is amazing when you're lost and you finally get in trouble, how amazing uh, uh, it is that your your prayer life comes back. (laughs) Oh, Lord, 
How many of you have not heard from me since the last time I was in this place? But here I am again. Friends, ultimately, our church attendance, our baptisms, our religious resume, our morality, our charitable deeds, our good intentions, they mean nothing if we have not come to that place where we have said, Jesus, save me from my sins. Save me from myself. Save me, Lord, from the curse upon mankind. You see, Jesus didn't come to cosmeticize us. He didn't come to do a little airbrushing on our soul. He came to overhaul who we are apart from him and make us into who we are to be in him. And that comes to everyone who believes on his name. If you're here today, I hope that you know, I confront you in love. I confront you in care and concern. But I cannot bear the thought of you leaving today trusting in anything less than a repentant encounter with the Son of God who loves you and will show you mercy and grace and compassion, but it will only come in that moment where you submit to His holy throne. So Joseph's got this dream, and I love what the Lord does in grace to Joseph. Because how many of you know there's a lot of things that can serve as a catalyst for weird dreams, right? I mean, not every dream is of the Lord, but some are. And when we see this, look at what happens. Joseph's dream, Matthew, attaches it to objective Scripture. Scripture's objective framework is seen in verses 22 through 25. All of this that is happening with Mary and Joseph took place to fulfill what the Lord had prophesied, what he had spoken by the prophet. What is that? Well, from Isaiah 7 and Isaiah 8, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and will bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And when Joseph awoke from sleep, notice this, He obeyed. He did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took Mary as his wife. But he refrained from intimacy, I'm paraphrasing here, verse 25, until she had given birth to the one, uh, the promised one, the son. And Joseph, as the earthly father, named him in obedience as to what the angel commanded, named him Jesus. So, We have his name Jesus, Yeshua. God saves, that's what he does. And then you have that second title, Emmanuel. God with us, that's who he is. Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, was indeed a mighty prophet, indeed a miracle worker. But scriptures say that nobody ever spoke like Jesus Christ spoke. There was no parallel. No, He was peerless in his ability to communicate the heart of God because he has the heart of God. And then when we, we see that, that he's, yes, a prophet, yes, a miracle worker. He raised people from the dead. He had power over nature. He walked on waves that should have brought him under. And yet in all of that, we don't need to simply say, what a mighty prophet, what an astounding miracle worker, what a, what a mind-blowing speaker. No, we must recognize he is Emmanuel. Jesus Christ is God. Amen. He 
He's God, friends. Jesus Christ is God. In our day where we live in a, a culture that is addicted to non-absolutes, to pluralities, where everybody wants a trophy. Now, mine's as good as yours. No, mine's as good as yours. Well, can't, and and where, where the, the universal mantra of America is found on the, the back of, of cars in a bumper sticker that says, coexist, written out with emblems of every world religion. That's the spirit of this age. And so I, I, I want to declare this unashamedly, but also intentionally, that there is no other God save Jesus Christ the Lord. There's no other name given among men whereby we must be saved. There, there is not a diverging road that ends up in the same destiny. There is one way, one truth, and one life, and his name is Jesus. And Jesus himself said that. He added when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, he added a negative statement. He says, and nobody gets to the Father unless they come through me. That's what Jesus said. So he's Emmanuel. He's God with us. And he appears in Matthew's narrative as the Holy Spirit's seed implanted in the womb of a peasant teenager named Mary who lost her reputation in order that she might carry the Son of God. And Joseph would always be known as the guy whose wife ran around on him and he was raising a child that wasn't his. And yet they bore the stigma. Let me say this before moving on. I'm having a hard time getting out of Matthew 1 this morning. We pray bold prayers. We pray big things. Lord, use me. Lord, help me die to myself. Holy Spirit, fill me. I want less of me. I want more of you. I must decrease. Lord, you must increase. And we pray those. And by the way, I think we should pray those. But understand that God answers those prayers. And the answer is not some, you know, lime sherbet, wonderful delicacy that drops on you from heaven like the dew of the morning. Sometimes he says, yes, I do need to get you out of you. And so it's not going to be flavorful things. It's going to be a time of trouble. A time where you're misunderstood, a time where you're misrepresented, a time where there's nothing you can do in your situation because I'm going to allow that uh, situation to have only one exit door, and that exit door is the one that leads you deeper into uh, intimacy with me. So Mary and Joseph couldn't get out. It was those two against the world at that point, and yet the Lord began to move. Now, I'm going to take you down to Matthew chapter number 2, verses 13, 14, and 15. I didn't read these verses, but I'm going to call this a dream-fueled deliverance. Now, let me give you some in-between moments here. In between what I just read and what I'm about to read is the birth of the Son of God. Jesus Christ comes forth through natural childbirth. The conception was miraculous, but Mary's delivery of Jesus Christ was fully natural. It wasn't, it wasn't anything less than any of you sisters have gone through when you brought forth a baby. It was painful. She didn't even have the Gwinnett Medical Women's Pavilion to help her out. She was in a stable in some of the most unsanitary conditions with no family around. And Joseph is there. 
And all of a sudden, just moments after the birth, come a bunch of rednecks from the fields, these blue-collar shepherds come bursting in saying, an angel told us that the son of the... I mean, put yourself in Mary's position. She's exhausted from labor. She's holding a baby, and a bunch of shepherds come in. And yet they come in and they are giving glory to God because they had been visited by angels, a whole host of angels that had humbled them in the fields and said, go to Bethlehem for there is your Messiah. So all around the birth of Jesus is this angelic, Holy Spirit saturated activity that's going on in order to announce to those who had ears to hear, the Messiah has come, the Messiah has come, the Messiah has come. Then on top of that, Some two years have passed between Matthew 1 and what we're about to read in chapter number 2. And the Magi from the east have come. Those astrologists, pagans, who knew enough of the Hebrew law to know that there would be a sign, that they would come out of the book of Numbers in the Hebrew Bible, that there would be a star shining when the Messiah had come, and they had traveled up from their territory at the time where they saw the star begin to shine. And now some two years had passed, and they had come, and they had found Joseph and Mary now living in a house. And there was the baby Jesus with them, probably around two years old at that time. And there he is, and these wise men come, and they bring gifts. They bring the gold, they bring the frankincense, they bring the myrrh, they pay homage to this baby of Mary. And they're laying down these gifts, and again, Mary and Joseph's hearts being impacted that this boy was not like any other boy. But here's the the downfall, that when the magi, the wise men, came into the city, it caused a stir. They obviously came in and such a probably an entourage of people that it stirred up the city. Why are these pagan soothsayers, these shamans from another place coming into where we are? And they are pressing in and they want to see Jesus. And yet Herod gains audience with them. And Herod, the pseudo king of the Jews at that time, was a madman, violent. And he caught wind that the king of the Jews had been born. And much like his... Uh, forefather in the spirit, King Saul of old, Herod became paranoid and he said, tell me, when was the time that you first saw the star? When was this baby born? And the wise men said, it's been about two years. And Herod says, when you go and find him, let me know where he is so I can come and worship him too. But he had murder in his heart. The wise men go, and they lay the gifts before Jesus. And again, a dream comes to the wise men. God sent those that didn't even belong to him, these shamans, these pagans, sent a dream to them so that they would know, don't go back to Herod, go back home a different way. And when Herod realized that the wise men had played tricks on him, his murderous rage was filled, so he declared all of the babies two years old and under will be slaughtered. And he committed some degree of infanticide. It wasn't too terribly long after that, by the way, that Herod died an excruciating, detestable death, eaten from the inside out in what Josephus describes as a hideous death that I won't bore you with the details of. Let me just give you two things, and I'm I'm just going to let you do with it whatever you want. It's a perfect time to say it. God never allows those who perpetually set themselves for the murder of innocent babies 
to persist in that endeavor unresisted. God has judged every single nation, every nation that has ever set and established laws, whether they are civic laws or religious laws, to murder babies. He has punished every single one of them, by the way, including the apple of his eye, ancient Israel, who sacrificed their children to Moloch and made them pass through the fire. And God said, that is enough. And he sent them off into captivity where they would no longer worship the gods that called them to sacrifice their children. Herod was destroyed from within, but before he died, an angel came to Joseph again. Look with me in Matthew 2, verse 13. A dire warning came in dream number two. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Joseph got another one and said, rise, take the child and his mother, flee to Egypt, remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. What we see here, friends, is the fury of Satan working through human instrumentation to exterminate the mission of the Messiah. Every moment that Jesus was alive on earth, from his birth to his toddler years, all the way until the days of the crucifixion, the mission of Satan and his innumerable host of demons was to work through human beings to exterminate the life of God the Son. Though Jesus was not thwarted in his mission, he went to the cross. All of his human enemies and all of the enemies that he had in the spirit rejoiced as they saw him hanging there on the cross. They watched him die, and hell in its ignorance celebrated for three days that they had overcome that holy throne that Satan, their master, once desired for himself. They thought, thought for three days, we've won, we've won, we've stopped the Messiah from setting up his throne on earth. We are victorious. And then three days later, Light and power and life comes forth from the tomb. And all of hell has been shaking and quaking in the specter of the Son of God's glory ever since that day. But I want you to know, the fury of hell hasn't gone anywhere. The mission of hell hasn't been turned off. He knows he's not going to win. He knows that he cannot unresurrect the eternally living King of Kings and glory, uh, King of Glory. Satan knows that he can do nothing to turn back the dial and keep Jesus in the grave. But he is the epitome of insanity. I didn't say he wasn't an intelligent creature, I said he's insane. And he now has his mission to steal, kill, and destroy anything in this generation and every generation, past and future, that brings glory to the one that defeated him. So what am I saying? I'm saying this. That's why he comes against the church. You know, we got here and started worshiping about 10.30 this morning, shortly before 10.30 this morning, on the other side of the world, as Christians were gathering in a church in Pakistan this morning. A suicide bomber walks in, an Islamic militant, walks into a church service where they're celebrating the Son of God, and he detonates, dozens hurt, eight killed. Why does this still take place? I want you to know it is the fuel of Satan to work through human instrumentation to deny and destroy the mission of the Messiah. Yeah. 
to come against all things that bring glory to Jesus Christ. And I choose to believe that those eight souls that had gathered in that church in Pakistan were our brothers and our sisters. And as soon as the bomb took their human life, they got to worship in glory on this Lord's day in his very presence. So once again, the devil can't win. The only time he wins is if we start believing his narrative above the Lord's narrative. And fear enters in. So Joseph was told in a dream, go to Egypt, protect the child's life. The Bible very clearly says in verse number 14 that Joseph had an obedience to the heavenly visitation. Look, he's two for two. First dream, he was told what to do. He obeyed without question. Second dream, he's told what to do. Verse 14 says, he rose, he took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt. I was just chewing on this today. I haven't heard anybody preach this, and I think it's reasonable. You can disagree with me if you choose to, and not going to upset me at all. Joseph and Mary were, were from Nazareth, which is a no-name town. We'll talk about it in a moment. And, of course, he was, Jesus was born in Bethlehem. But as, as, as the journey now, they're being called. You know, you got a, you got a two-year-old, and you're just starting to get your feet back under you. And Joseph receives this vision, take Mary, take the baby, flee to Egypt. You know, it's not like, you know, taking an Uber vehicle down to Norcross from here. We're talking about walk to Egypt, or at best, ride on a mule to Egypt. And live there, the angel says, until I tell you it's time to leave. So they're packing up everything. They don't know if it's going to be a month, a year, five years. They're starting over again. Why am I telling you this? Because I, I, just, I just want to take every opportunity I can to break us away from our addiction that we believe that the Christian life is smooth and predictable. You're just not going to find that in anybody that you admire in Scripture. You'll find it in the lives of a lot of people you don't admire in Scripture, but you won't find any admirable person in faith whose life was just a, you know, a walk through the tulip patch. And so when they get down there, and I just started thinking about this, I was like, Lord, how did they fund that? How do, you, how do they live? How do they feed themselves? And listen, disagreeing with me if you want, I, I found myself, well, they had to do something with that gold they got on Jesus' second birthday. You know, I, I knew that wouldn't go over well, but I just, I just, I just want to roll with this for a minute. Listen, we, 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 we picture the gold, the frankincense, and myrrh, and like, like they put it on the coffee table. It's gold. It's a stack of Benjamins in our day. They're going to live off of that. The Lord was taking care of them, so the Lord actually finances their flight to Egypt. There you go. Now you got with me. Okay. You know, we just kind of think about that. They got some real money that day, and the Lord, the Lord actually provided everything they needed before they needed it. Lord's like, I'm about to send them down to Egypt. That's going to cost. Joseph's making minimum wage. Uh, he whistles for the Magi from the east. Hey, come, come, come and bring him some gold. And that's just the way the Lord does. Lord just takes care of our needs. Amen. You know, the American dream says you're going to have all your needs taken care of before you actually need it. The walk of faith says, no, you live this life to be a giver and giver and giver. And as the more you give, the more you set yourself up to receive what you need when you need it. Yeah. We're addicted to having it before we need it. And then we say, when I have it before I need it, I'll know how much I can afford to give. That's completely unbiblical. It has nothing to do with what I'm preaching this morning. So let me get back to the text. <laughs> so verse number 15, again, supernatural work, dreams, angels, working in supernatural ways. 
bringing by a light in the sky, some star in the sky, bringing magi from a distant land to come and bring them the gold, the frankincense, and the myrrh. And then it says in verse number 15, it lets us have not only the supernatural, but the objective scripture. You're seeing the word and the spirit guide Joseph's life during this roller coaster season. The spirit, the supernatural work, and then the word. What am I talking about? They remained in Egypt until the death of Herod. And the Bible is very clear. This trip to Egypt was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet Hosea. Out of Egypt I called my son. So 700 years, I think that's about the time where Hosea ministered. 700 years before Jesus as a two-year-old was whisked away by his earthly father Joseph at the behest of an angel in a dream. 700 years before God had prophesied through Hosea that God would call his son out of Egypt. And so the Lord is down to the very details. There's so much prophetic, objective scripture talking about Jesus, the Son of God. You have to have faith not to believe once you come into encounter with the biblical facts on this. So let's get to the third dream and we'll wind it up. This is what I call a supernatural reboot because they're now living in Egypt. We don't know how long they, they lived there. Herod died in 4 BC. Some of us think that Jesus was born on year zero. He actually wasn't. He was probably born around 6 BC, maybe even earlier than that. But Herod died in 4 BC, and it was after the death of Herod that Jesus comes with Joseph and Mary back into the land of Israel. And so here comes the reboot. Remember, let's focus on Joseph as we finish here. God imparted another dream to Joseph. When Herod died, Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those, plural, who sought the child's life are dead. It shows you the intensity and the organization of Satan to gain not just Herod, but people working with or for Herod to find out who is this one born the king of the Jews. When we find him, we'll kill him. If we can't find him, we'll kill all of the kids in the same age bracket. That's what he did. But eventually, the killers got killed. The Bible is very clear that all of them who sought to exterminate the life of Jesus died. They died under the judgment of God. And so, Joseph receives this dream that it's now time to go back. Can I just get real with you here? A lot of people can't bear with the Lord when he throws one change into their life. I'm not being critical here. I'm just talking real. God throws them one curveball, and all that they said was their confidence of God goes out the window with the first curveball. Rarely can a person receive a second major adjustment in their life plans. Very rare is the person that responds in unquestioning obedience unto the Lord. Joseph was three for three. Joseph gets the third one. I mean, th think about it. He's getting married. And then his engaged wife says, I'm pregnant. Joseph says, I'm done. The angel says, no, you're not. Joseph says, okay. He obeyed. The second one is, get up. There's a, a death warrant out on your two-year-old. Get up, flee, go to Egypt, hang out there, live there, start a life there. I'll tell you when you can come back. So no questioning. Joseph 
gets his wife, his baby, whatever they took with them, goes down to Egypt, starts rebuilding a life there. And then the angel comes and says, it's all clear back home. Now, pack everything up. We're going back to Israel. Three major, major shifts in life coming directly from the Lord. And Joseph, I just look at this man. I say, God, make me like him. Lord, make me like him. When you begin to facilitate things that weren't included in the syllabus I wrote for my own life, in the things that I thought I would do, in the things that I thought you would, the places I thought you would take me. Lord, when, when you make changes in those things, when you give a right angle, when I thought we were going on a straight line, when you call me to do a 180 and I'm bound to determine to make that thing in a 360 so I can keep going the direction I wanted to go. Lord, make me like Joseph, who when you change things up on him, he didn't quit, he didn't run, he didn't hide, he didn't accuse, he didn't blame. He just said... I trust you. I'm going to tell you something that the new year is going to bring to your life. Lots of opportunities to respond like Joseph. If you're a part of New Bridge Church, you've just kind of gotten used to even, even things in our faith family changing. You know, we're just hitting our stride. We're two years in. We are New Bridge. We are New Bridge. And God says, yeah, and you're going to merge with IHOP Atlanta. And so all of a sudden we're thinking, we... We are, we, are, we are in transition again. <laughs> now listen, I, I want to say something here. Very practically, very practically speaking. Leaders have an advantage because we steward the vision. We pray for it. And then call, God calls us to impart it to you. And you haven't had five months. And you haven't had all of the dialogue. You haven't had the chance to pray. But Dustin and I more than once just get into the presence of the Lord and we say, Lord, I want to thank you that you've grown and matured and shepherded their hearts to the extent where even in the midst of the unknowns, they say, Lord, we will follow these two men as they follow you. And we just keep pressing in and we keep saying, okay, he's the master planner. We're the stewards of the plan. But it may not even be your church life. It may be your relational life. Some of you um, have experienced loss in the last uh, 12 months. Heartbreaking loss. Some of you have experienced circumstantial, financial, or vocational changes. And yet here you are today. And you're not letting that thing be predominant in your thinking. You're letting him be predominant in your thinking. And that to me is fruits that evidence genuine trust and faith. Sometimes, as I've said before, faith is merely the refusal to panic. Sometimes that's what faith is. It's just saying, I don't know, I'm not feeling it, but I ain't going to panic because he's never let me down. And he's always made sense. He's always given me the ability later to comprehend what in the moment is incomprehensible. And that's what he's doing. So I'm going to finish. Worship team, if you'll come up, that'll help me finish. Would you come up, please? Joseph proved himself this worthy steward of dreams. In verse 21, he rose, he took the child, he took the mother, and he went back to the land of Israel. And then verse 22 tells us something also, that God can even use our weaknesses to accomplish his plans. I love what verse 22 says. When Joseph heard that Archelaus, that's the son of Herod, He's basically Herod 2.0. He's just as filthy and wicked and demonic as his dad. And he was now reigning over Judea now that his father had died. 
Joseph was afraid to go back home. And being warned in a dream, look at how the Lord met him in his weakness. Being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. Speaking of Jesus, the Messiah, he shall be called a Nazarene. So Joseph wasn't strutting through the will of God. Joseph's just like you. There are points where he could obey, but there were points where he obeyed through his fears. I'm so glad that's in the Bible. Because sometimes we picture these men and women, these heroes of the faith in Scripture, as strutting through these deep calls of God. Like Esther. You know, Esther delivered her people. Yeah, but do you remember how, how shocked she was and how worried she was that she was going to have to go uninvited into the presence of her husband, the king? Do you remember how she wrestled and she called a fast? Y'all pray for me, y'all pray for me. You've got other people. You know, Abraham, he's, he's the father of the faith, but, but there were times where he trembled in the presence of pagan leaders and he lied. Said his wife was his sister because they thought if it was his wife, they'd kill him and take her. Isaac did the same thing. You know, you, you've got Peter in the book of Galatians. Peter, big, stout, tough Peter. When some, some really hardcore legalists showed up in the churches in, in Galatia, Peter started saying, I don't have liberty, you don't have liberty, y'all, let's not live in liberty because the legalists are here. Peter was afraid of the religious spirit. So we, we see all of this in Scripture. So what are we to learn? Ultimately, God doesn't reject us when we struggle with fears. God doesn't say, oh, I smell a little fear on you. Let me go find one who's perpetually fearless. Do you know why he doesn't say that? Because there aren't any. There aren't any perpetually fearless people. We all have that little, um, like the, in, in the Lord of the Rings, that, that dragon, was Smog, I think was his name. He was fully covered except for that one little piece that when the arrow got in there, it struck his heart. We've all got that weakness. Yet the Lord looks at us and he sees our commitment to him and he knows his love for us and he knows our weakness. And he, he's, he's not a high priest that doesn't have compassion on the feelings of our infirmities. He understands. And so even in our trembling like Joseph was, the Lord looks at the angel and says, hey, one last dream for him. One last dream. Go down and tell him that it's okay, go to Galilee and go to Nazareth and start that life there. That's the last we ever hear of Joseph. Joseph's life is one of trusting obedience. God spoke to him in supernatural dreams and solidified it with the objective Old Testament, our Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, the voice of the prophets. That's how he's going to work in your life and mine. The Holy Spirit is moving in your life. He's stretching you. He's going to speak to you in ways that maybe you never thought he would speak. But he's also going to come to you with the solid and unquestionable word of God. And you and I have the privilege in our generation to experience the fullness and the supernatural activity of the Holy Spirit and the authority of of the Word of God. 
That's how the first church lived out their faith. That's how we're going to live out our faith. And as we do, we're going to steward the message of the Messiah so that it reaches all generations before the Lord comes again. Would you stand to your feet this morning?